Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to have you along with us this week. A lot to cover. Jump right in. Just last week, a well-known Jesuit, just in time for the U.S. bishop's call for Eucharistic revival, this Jesuit theologian has publicly announced via an article in the National Catholic Register that he does not believe in transubstantiation because he no longer believes in the philosophical arguments of Aristotelian metaphysics. And as a medievalist and an armchair Thomist, I could provide him with a long list of 20th and 21st century popes and theologians uh, who don't think there's an expiration date on St. Thomas Aquinas or his use of Aristotle, and much less on the Church's doctrine. And despite his claims to the contrary, his assertion, quote, that he believes in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, just not in transubstantiation, is, I'm sorry to say, in fact, a heresy. So more on that later in the program. Also in the news last week uh, was a tweet from the Holy Father's official Twitter account, his English-language Twitter account, posted on the 2nd of February. The tweet read, The middle finger, which is higher than the others, reminds us of something essential, honesty. To be honest means not in getting entangled in the snares of corruption. Now, within an hour, this got 334,000 views, 1,776 likes, 488 retweets, and 651 quote tweets. And I say at least because the tweet was also deleted within the hour. <laughs> Those numbers uh, just were the ones on the screenshot that somebody took while it was still up. So it may have gotten uh, some more before it was removed. But the reason it was taken down was the avalanche of vulgar comments that immediately followed its appearance. Uh, in fact, the report that I read was called Pope's Middle Finger. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can you imagine a headline that starts with the three words, Pope's Middle Finger? Uh, Pope's Middle Finger Tweet Draws Trolls. Okay, yeah, wow, big surprise. Apparently Pope Francis, or you know whoever it is that actually manages his Twitter account, was unaware of the meaning of the well-known gesture featuring the middle finger, or perhaps what it represents in pop culture. And there is a lesson here. Do not try to engage pop culture unless you are engaged with pop culture. You know, I, maybe this tweet would have flown in, in Italy where they have their own <laughs> vulgar gestures, but certainly not in the U.S. or any place that, you know, shows American television or movies, which is pretty much every place. In any event, tweets are too short to provide context. And what the story I read didn't say is that this tweet was very likely referencing Pope Francis's uh, now famous five-finger prayer. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's the Pope's method of reminding yourself of all the people you should pray for using the five fingers of your hands. So starting with the thumb, the Pope says, we pray for those who love uh, because they're the easiest to remember. They're the closest to us. Uh, and then next on the index finger, we pray for those who, who teach and who heal. So those who instruct us, those uh, you know, doctors, uh, teachers, professors, and so on. Uh, bishops, whatnot, priests, those who, who, who need support and, and give wisdom and direction to others. Then the infamous middle finger, a.k.a. tall man, <laughs> says, he says this reminds us to pray for our governors. So since it's the tallest finger, he says it reminds us of our leaders, our governors who have authority. So that would be, you know, politicians as well as bishops. And hence one presumes the the uh, Twitter admonition to honesty and, and warning about corruption. 
Then the ring finger is next. He says, being the weakest finger, it reminds us to pray for the weakest among us, the, the vulnerable, the sick, and the poor, and those who are plagued with uh, personal problems. And then finally, the pinky finger is the smallest. It reminds us that after we pray for others, we should also pray for ourselves. So there it is. Um, also, this Sunday, in the extraordinary form, was Septuagesima Sunday. And it is the beginning of the short season of Septuagesima. It's a short season of preparation for Lent. And speaking of Lent, this coming Ash Wednesday, we'll see the implementation of the new translation of the formula for absolution said by the priest in confessional. And I spoke about these upcoming changes a couple of years ago when it was first adopted by the uh, USCCB in, in 2021. But it's certainly mentioning, or certainly worth mentioning again, uh, as its implementation is right around the corner. Now, for more than 15 years, <clears throat> I've been talking about the prophecy of Our Lady of Good Success, that a marvelous restoration of the Church would follow the unprecedented moral chaos that began in the middle of the 20th century, and in which we are currently embroiled. Now, during the pontificate of Benedict XVI, it was easier to identify some of the signs that perhaps this restoration was in fact already underway. Um, certainly his liberation of the traditional Latin Mass with some more pontificate, but also, I think, very significant, the corrected English translation of the Novus Ordo Missal. You know, there's an old saying in Rome, traditori, traditori. Two Italian words sound very similar but mean very different things. Traditori, traditori means translators, traitors. And that's because it's not really possible to convert one language into another without something being lost in translation, as the saying goes. But, you know, the New English Missal actually corrected some gross mistranslations, uh, such as the response to the Lord be with you, which um, was formerly translated or mistranslated as and also with you, when in fact et cum spiritu tuo, of course, means and with your spirit an important distinction between the priest and the people. Um, or, you know, you have the dreadful mistranslation of provobis et promaltis as for you and for all, when promaltis clearly means for many. And then there were any number of kind of sins of omission. You have, uh, I have sinned. You know, it's I have greatly sinned. I have sinned through my own fault. No, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. You know, um, only say the word and I shall be healed. No, it's only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Important distinctions, all right? So and it was a breath of fresh air because for decades, any changes from Rome usually uh, did not bode well for the faithful celebration of the liturgy. But the pendulum is, is, has begun to swing back. And, and even if it's being resisted by the current powers that be, um, you know, a recent case in point being Traditionis Custodes, trying to undo... Samorum pontifications normalization of the Old Mass. But I remember well how the correction of the English Missal was bitterly opposed. You know, just back in 2011, it wasn't that long ago, bitterly opposed by all the usual suspects, so including but not limited to um, the official Jesuit publication America Magazine. And their response included an article by the infamous Father James Martin, who, as usual, maintained some plausible deniability regarding his own personal opposition to Rome by merely quoting a, a fellow Jesuit, Father Philip Endine, to the effect that the new translation was, quote-unquote, abusive. Yeah. 
all those things that I just talked about, that, that's abusing the faithful and abusing the words of the Mass. Why, in his typical style, he questioned what, what, what really counts as a good translation, he says. And he said there were problems, unidentified of course, but problems with the way the Vatican's authority was being exercised. He even went so far as to insinuate that the way they handled the translation of the Missal, in his words, the sacred, the intimate, the vulnerable, was akin to the horrors of the clerical abuse of minors. Now, all of this Jesuit pearl-clutching aside, the authentic history behind the corrected translations is readily available to anybody that really wants to know. You know, because going back years before, talking about the New American Bible, for example, the, the International Commission on English and the Liturgy, uh, which will be heretofore known as ISIL, uh, had been tasked with correcting the 1970 translation of the New American Bible. And the result was the 1986 revision of the New Testament, uh, which was incorporated uh, largely into the English Missal. Uh, in 1990, then, the Catholic Biblical Association passed a resolution to urge a revision of the New American Bible Old Testament. And, but the revision of the Psalms uh, was the first thing. It was published in 1991. And it was so beset with inclusive language that the Psalms were deemed unfit for liturgical use by the Congregation for Divine Worship. And the reason is that, that ISIL's fanatical determination to rid the Holy Scripture of male pronouns rendered incomprehensible the many verses of the Psalms that are prophetic of Jesus Christ. And the rest of the Old Testament revision was complete in 20, uh, 2008. It was approved by the U.S. bishops, but they would not allow it to be published with the 1991 Psalms. And the reason being the publication of a document called Liturgium Authenticum, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, ultimately, a final uh, revision of the NAB Psalter was undertaken uh, using suggestions uh, from the Vatican Subcommittee on the Translation of Scripture Texts and ensuring the stricter conformity to Liturgium Authenticum. And this revision was finally published in 2010. It's known as the New American Bible Revised Edition. But it hasn't been approved for liturgical use. It's only approved for private reading. So work began then in 2012, uh, the, a year after the New Missal translation came out, on yet another and more faithful revision that can be used for Mass and the sacraments and the Liturgy of the Hours. Because currently, although the U.S. Bishop's website will tell you that only the NAB may be used for liturgical celebrations in the United States, the fact is that our current lectionary is, is a cobbled together you know, a hybrid of the 1986 New Testament, the 1970 Old Testament translations, a few verses that don't appear in either translation for good measure, and it employs a completely different translation of the Psalms altogether. Both the Novus Ordo Missae and the Liturgy of the Hours employ a completely different translation, um, a, a translation of the Psalms called the Grail Psalter, you know, like the Holy Grail, the Grail Psalter, uh, which was first published in England in 1963 by an international group called the Ladies of the Grail. And it's an interesting story where that came from. We're going to talk about that more and eventually get around to the new translation of the Formula for Absolution when we return with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold. Pleased and blessed to be with you. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about the long trials and tribulations that beset the English translation of the Bible for use in the liturgy and how currently we're using kind of a cobbled together version, although in uh, 2012, the bishops... uh, have decided they're going to undergo yet another revision in hopes of having a single English language uh, Bible translation that is fit to be used in the Holy Liturgy. Now, all of that is background. When uh, the Congregation for Divine Worship under St. John Paul II first mandated the correction of the English translation of the New Missal, ISIL responded in 1998 with a revised translation that was even less faithful than the previous one. Uh, and so it, it was the proverbial last straw for the powers that be, and it prompted the Congregation for the Divine Worship to call for the dismissal of the International Committee of English and the Liturgy's staff, and then they prepared an official instruction on the proper translation of liturgical texts called Liturgium Authenticum. That was in 2001. And I remember when Liturgium Authenticum came out, thinking to myself, this is a wonderful document. It's really clear, and it will almost certainly never be implemented, you know, at least not in my lifetime. Uh, because, you know, I'd seen the track record of the stuff that had been coming out of Rome all the time I was Catholic. And, but yet, a scant 10 years later, in 2011, we got a new and, for once, actually improved translation. Because what I didn't count on, of course, was Benedict XVI. And they're not done. And that brings us to the new translation for the formula for absolution and the ongoing work of correcting the English translations of all the liturgical texts in general. You know, another fruit of this effort that we just saw back in 2021 was when the U.S. bishops announced that RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, will now be referred to as the Order of Christian Initiation for Adults. You might think, well, you know, what's the big deal, one word? Well, it conforms better to the Latin, number one, and also to reality, because there are actually several liturgical rites involved with the order of Christian initiation for adults, um, including the, uh, the rites of acceptance and of sending and of election and the scrutinies that take place on the Sundays of Lent that also include minor exorcisms. And then the, the, the rite of initiation proper celebrated at Easter Vigil, when the elect receive the sacramental grand slam of baptism, confirmation, and first Holy Communion. See, that's a lot of rites within the order of Christian initiation for adults. So this new term has been approved, but it won't likely be adopted until all of the attendant liturgical translations are also revised according to Liturgium Authenticum. Which brings us back to this Lent and the changes in the formula of absolution. The text in the New English translation of the Formula of Absolution was adopted once again by the bishops in their uh, conference of, uh, in the spring of 21, 2021. And then the Vatican's Congregation for Divine Worship, as it was called now, it has a name change too. It's now the Dicastery of uh, Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments. Um, but they approved the text in uh, April of 2022. And then the new formula is meant to be implemented this coming Ash Wednesday. But it will only become mandatory in, uh, April, on April 16th, 2023, which is um, the second Sunday of Easter, a.k.a. Divine Mercy Sunday. And these changes are, again, they're, they're minimal, but they conform more closely to the Latin text. 
God the Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of His Son, has reconciled the world to Himself and poured out the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins. You know, formerly or currently, it's sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you can see how that new translation uh, uh, changes the passive voice of the previous translation to the more active voice, and it's also, you know, it's more faithful to the Latin. He doesn't send the Holy Spirit among us. He he pours out the Holy Spirit for, right? Um, It continues, Through the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace. Uh, Grant replaces give. used to be give you pardon and peace. Now it's grant you pardon and peace, again, in better conformity to the Latin. And it concludes, And I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So you can see that's the essential part of the formula. I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That remains the same. And I bring it up because I know how some people are. And I just want to tell you right now, there's no need to panic if at some point after April 16th, um, Father, your priest, you know, your confessor, who has used the old formula, you know, like half a gazillion times, if he should inadvertently use the old version, don't be worried. It's still going to be valid because the essential words haven't changed. In fact, there was some debate among the bishops back in 2021 about whether it was really worth it to make such seemingly minor changes in the formula. But the consensus favored uh, trying for a more accurate translation of the Latin. And that's a good sign. That's the way things are moving. And these updates uh, continue this broader effort by the Vatican to ensure accuracy in the English translation of liturgical texts uh, that began with Liturgium Authenticum in 2020 or in uh, 2001. So, and if nothing else, the, the changes in the formula for absolution will give pastors the opportunity to reiterate and teach the importance of regular confession, you know, as an integral part of the Christian life, and to catechize about the sacrament itself. And that's a good thing. And that's no nonsense. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mentioned in the first segment a article by a Jesuit priest, Father Thomas Rees, S.J., was published in the National Catholic Reporter on the 31st of January, so just last week, and it's called, quote, The Eucharist is about more than the real presence, and uh, wherein he waxes uh, on about the uh, Eucharist and in the process denies the dogmatic definition of the doctrine of transubstantiation. Can't make this stuff up. Quote, Since my critics often accuse me of heresy, before I go further, let me affirm that I believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I just don't believe in transubstantiation, because I don't believe in prime matter, substantial forms, and accidents that are part of Aristotelian metaphysics. Thomas Aquinas used Aristotelianism, the avant-garde philosophy of his time, to explain the Eucharist to his generation. What worked in the 13th century won't work today, will not work today. If he were alive today, he would not use Aristotelianism because nobody grasps it in the 21st century. So forget transubstantiation. Better to admit that Christ's presence in the Eucharist is an unexplainable mystery that our little minds cannot comprehend. <sighs> Close quote. Now, I, it was painful for me to read that. I might feel the soles of my feet are getting hot <laughs> just saying all of that out loud. And, and, and to begin with, let me say how really tired I am of hearing how modern man can't grasp medieval philosophy or, or theology. 
because that is 100% pure, unadulterated, unvarnished nonsense. That said, according to Father Reese, rather than accept the definition of transubstantiation, which, by the way, is a dogma of the Church, uh, we should rather, quote, admit that Christ's presence in the Eucharist is an unexplainable mystery that our little minds cannot comprehend, unquote. Well, guess what, Father? We already do that. Transubstantiation, that term, it's a definition of something that is essentially mysterious. You know, the point is that a genuine change takes place. Not that everybody understands it. See, uh, Jesus said in the Eucharistic discourse, perhaps as a Jesuit priest, he's read John chapter 6, Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people don't understand it. Everybody left, with the exception of... uh, Peter and the other apostles. At at the Last Supper, he takes the elements into his holy and venerable hands and declares, this is my body, this is my blood. And we, like the apostles, we simply take Jesus at his word because, as St. Peter declares in Scripture, Jesus has the words of eternal life. Now, to reject the Church's definition, transubstantiation, is really no different than rejecting the dogmatic definition of the Trinity. You know, defining the doctrine of the Trinity as one God and three divine persons doesn't make it any less of a mystery. It doesn't make it more comprehensible, but there's more. You know, one of the bad things about having a weekly program is that I can't immediately weigh in on things like this right when they happen. On the other hand, one of the good things about having a weekly program is that I cannot immediately weigh in on things like this right when they happen. See, my, my point is that other commentators get there before me, and, and they tend to say the same sort of things that I would have said. But on the other hand, it gives me time for contemplation, and I also enjoy the benefit of the insights of other commentators that I would not have had. For instance, um, like some other commentators, I would have pointed out immediately that Father's problem with understanding the Aristotelian metaphysics employed by Aquinas in the 13th century was not an impediment to the post-medieval fathers at the Council of Trent or to the, the modern teachings of popes like Leo XIII in the 19th century or, or Pius X in the 20th century, or even Pius XII for that matter. Although uh, I know that many a progressivist Catholic would dismiss all of the above for being pre-Vatican II. But, but there it is all the same. And, and something that, that I would not have known to point out uh, is that when... When Father Reese describes Aristotelian metaphysics as the avant-garde of the 13th century, first off, trying to suggest, I think, subtly that, that Aquinas was as avant-garde in his way as Father Reese is, you know, today, uh, which is nonsense. But uh, he, he describes it as avant-garde because most of Aristotle's works weren't available in Latin until well into the 13th century. Uh, and that's because, well, you know, the funny thing is that it actually works against Father Reese's argument. This is Eric Sammons pointed this out in an article for Crisis magazine that was called Jesuits Misbehaving Yet Again. Father Reese, he says, quote, bases his unbelief on the claim that transubstantiation is founded on prime matter, substantial forms, and accidents that are part of Aristotelian metaphysics, what he associ- you know, which he associates with Thomas Aquinas. What's interesting, he goes on to say, is that the Fourth Lateran Council defined the doctrine of transubstantiation in the year 1215, before most of Aristotle's corpus was even known in the West, having not yet been translated into Latin. 
He says, St. Thomas Aquinas, today's great boogeyman of the left, who often incorporated Aristotelian metaphysics, wasn't even born until 10 years after the, the doctrine of transubstantiation was uh, defined at the Council of Fourth Lateran. Wasn't even born. Now, the term transubstantiation itself, in fact, was used as early as the year 1079 by Hildebert of Tours. Now, that's nearly 150 years before the definition by Fourth Lateran, which was 10 years before Aquinas was even born. And what this means is that Father Reese's main argument is the kind of nonsense that is best described by a word in Webster's Dictionary that you will find under B, right between bulwark and bullfinch. But that's not the only issue. The fact is, the Church has dogmatically defined that a Catholic must believe in transubstantiation, and it's no protection against the charge of heresy for him to claim to believe in the real presence while rejecting the doctrine of transubstantiation. After all, that was precisely the heresy of Martin Luther. And if he doesn't like to be accused of heresy, he should simply stop saying heretical things. All right, more when we return with No Nonsense Catholic here on VMPR Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. All right, just to finish up the point on uh, Father Reese's claim that um, he accepts the real presence of Christ in whatever way he might understand it, but rejects transubstantiation on the basis that this is a matter of Aristotelian metaphysics that 21st century people can no longer grasp. Um, And and I pointed out that I think that can be refuted uh, through any number of magisterial documents throughout history. But I don't have to go back to pre-Vatican II popes and theologians to refute the argument. Uh, listen to the words of Pope Paul VI. Okay, the, the very pope that that uh, gave that was you know the pope that closed Vatican II, who gave us the new mass, Pope Saint Paul VI, and this is from his uh, his great encyclical Mysterium Fidei from 1965. He said, "The Church's voice, which constantly echoes the voice of Christ." assures us that the way in which Christ becomes present in the sacrament is through the conversion of the whole substance of the bread into his body and of the whole substance of the wine into his blood, a unique and truly wonderful conversion that the Catholic Church fittingly and properly calls transubstantiation. The rule of language which the Church has established through the long labor of centuries with the help of the Holy Spirit and which she has confirmed with the authority of the councils, and which has more than once been the watchword and banner of Orthodox faith, is to be religiously preserved, and no one may presume to change it at his own pleasure or under the pretext of new knowledge. Who would ever, <clears throat> who would ever tolerate that the dogmatic formulas used by the ecumenical councils for the mysteries of the Holy Trinity and the Incarnation be judged as no longer appropriate for men of our times, and let others be rashly substituted for them. This, by the way, that's exactly the point that I made in the last segment. In the same way, he goes on, it cannot be tolerated that any individual should, on his own authority, take something away from the formulas which were used by the Council of Trent to propose the Eucharistic mystery for our belief. These formulas, like the others that the Church used to pronounce the dogmas of faith, 
express concepts that are not tied to a certain specific form of human culture or to a certain level of scientific progress or to one or another theological school. Instead, they set forth what the human mind grasps of reality through necessary and universal experience and what it expresses in apt and exact words, whether it be in ordinary or more refined language. For this reason, and here's the slam dunk, for this reason, these formulas are adapted to all men of all times and all places. Boom. Father Reese, like I said, he starts his article by saying, my critics accuse me of heresy. Well, if you don't want to be accused of heresy, stop spouting heresy. That's a simple solution. Um, Mr. Sammons, though, he, he shared a concern that uh, is also matters to me, not simply that Father Reese is wrong, but that he was so bold in proclaiming his error. You know, there's nothing in that article of, of the infamous Jesuit elusiveness, you know, or, or so much as an attempt at, at uh, probable deniability. And that tells us something we should be concerned about. Now, here's the way Eric Sammons put it. He said, I find two things particularly troubling about this specific incident. First is the boldness of Reese's assertion that he doesn't believe in transubstantiation. Modern Jesuits are usually known for their genius in undermining Catholic doctrine without explicitly rejecting it. Yet here, Father Reese feels comfortable simply rejecting the church's teaching with no fear of being disciplined by church authorities. And there it is. He goes on to say, It becomes clear that church discipline only applies to clerics who use the wrong tone or support, support the wrong politics, that is to say conservatism. And Father Reese knows that he won't get in trouble. And that's far more concerning than one priest's rejection of a fundamental church teaching. And that's no nonsense. All right. Um, this past Sunday, the fifth in ordinary time in the Novus Ordo was in the extraordinary form Septuagesima Sunday. And the word Septuagesima means 70. See, according to the First Council of Orléans, in the year 545, many pious churchmen and lay people in the, in the early church uh, used to fast 70 days before Easter. Uh, and their fast was called, therefore, Septuagesima. And that then was afterwards used to distinguish this particular Sunday, 70 days before Easter. Same was the case uh, with the following Sundays. Many Christians began their fast 60 days before Easter, so we have Sexagesima Sunday, or 50 days, hence Quinquagesima Sunday, or 40 days, we have Quadragesima Sunday. Um, Alcuin and Alamarius say that the captivity of the Jews in Babylon is what first suggested the 70-day fast, because as the Jews were obliged to do penance for 70 years in captivity in Babylon, um, that they might then merit to return to the Promised Land. So Christians sought to regain the grace of God by fasting for 70 days to prepare for Easter. Uh, so while the Novus Ordo continues in the hopeful green vestments of ordinary time, the extraordinary form has already donned the purple vestments of penance and will, from last Sunday until Easter, omit the Alleluia and the Gloria and all the joyful chants, today, etc., and this is meant to remind the, the sinner of the gravity of his errors and encourage him to do penance, but also to incite us all to have sorrow for our sins and, and to understand the, the, necessi necess <laughs> pardon me, the necessity of repentance. And so uh, I wanted to look at the readings for Septuagesima Sunday. The first is the epistle. It's from 1 Corinthians 9, 
24 through 10, verse 5. You are well aware that while all the runners in the stadium compete in the race, only one wins the prize. Run in such a way as to win the prize. Everyone who seeks a prize submits himself to rigorous self-discipline in every respect. They do so to win a perishable crown, while we seek an imperishable one. Therefore, I do not run without purpose, nor do I fight like a man beating the air. Rather, I discipline my body and bring it under control, for fear that after preaching to others I myself may be disqualified. Brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the desert. Even in worldly endeavors, it takes sacrifice and discipline to excel. Sacrifice and discipline to play a musical instrument, to get good grades in school, to be a, to be a champion athlete or a successful business person. No one ever had genuine success in these endeavors without applying himself or herself, without choosing to practice or study or drill or work uh, when they would rather have done something else. And so St. Paul is asking us to reflect on this truth and to ask ourselves this question. Are we poor sinners, that's you and I, are we willing to do what the church asks of us in order to gain heaven? It's an excellent question to ask yourself before the beginning of Lent. Paul calls to mind the story of the Hebrews in the wilderness, uh, where the people were given all the gifts they needed for life, the, the water from the rock, the manna from heaven, um, the water, he said, and it, which symbolized baptism and, and Eucharist. And according to the Jewish tradition, the rock that Moses struck to uh, bring out the water followed the Hebrews through the wilderness, so that they would always have water. And Paul uses that tradition to make the point that since the time of the Exodus, Christ has been leading his people. The rock was Christ, he says. But most especially, if the events in the life of, of the Hebrews in the wilderness, if that foreshadows the reality of the church, then their behavior at that time must also serve as a warning for us today. That in order to please God, it isn't enough to go through the motions, just to go to church and receive the sacraments. Christians have to be committed to an unwavering effort to fidelity, to be faithful, to rely on the help of the Holy Spirit. See, that's number one. Uh, faith and works, right? That, that uh, one verse, let me see. Um, no, 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 no. We seek an imperishable crown. I do not run without purpose, nor do I fight like a man who's beating the air. It's like a reference like shadow boxing. He says, rather, I discipline my body and bring it under control. He's talking about acts of mortification, you know, fasting and the like. I, I discipline my body and bring it under control for fear that I, having preached to others, I myself may be disqualified. I tell you what, friends, if St. Paul is concerned about the loss of his salvation, then you and I need to understand it as well. In another place, he says that he, he works out his salvation in fear and trembling. You know, this is, you know, our, our, our salvation is uh, by no means guaranteed if we do not remain faithful to the gospel. And speaking of the gospel... Gospel for Septuagesima Sunday, taken from Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. It is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Going, about nine, or going out about nine o'clock, he saw some others standing idle in the marketplace. He said to them, You also go into my vineyard, and I will give you what is just. When he went out again around noon and at three in the afternoon, he did the same. Then about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They answered, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You too go into my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Summon the workers and give them their pay, beginning with those who came last and ending with the first. When those who had started to labor at five o'clock came, each of them received a denarius. Therefore, those who had come first thought that they would receive more, but they were paid a denarius the same as the others. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner, saying, These men who were hired last worked only one hour, and yet you have rewarded them on the same level with us who have borne the great portion of the work and the heat of the day. The owner replied to one of them, Friend, I am not treating you unfairly. Did you not agree with me to work for a denarius? Take your pay and leave. I have chosen to pay the latecomers the same as I pay you. Am I not free to do as I wish with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Thus the last will be first, and the first will be last. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. And we're going to talk about what that means for us today, especially within this uh, season of Septuagesima before Lent, when we return with more No-Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, at the end of the last segment, we were looking at the readings for the uh, for Septuagesima Sunday, and uh, the gospel was the parable of the laborers in the vineyard from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. And I want to make a few quick points. First, the translation that I've been reading from, as I have for the last couple of years, uh, maybe even three years by now, uh, has been or was taken from the New Catholic Bible, right? the New Catholic Bible translation, which is... You know, it's it's a modern translation, a la the New American Bible. In fact, it's very close to the New American Bible in many ways. But I think that uh, in many ways it's a superior. And since the 2010 New American Bible Revised Edition and the New Catholic Bible are both uh, approved for private reading and and study and not for liturgy, then you know, I, they're perhaps on a on a par uh, with you know uh, authority wise. Anyway, a couple of quick points. First off, in that translation, we read um, 9 o'clock, noon, 3 in the afternoon, 5 o'clock. Literally, it was the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the 11th hour. Um, like, a, a, like a military watch or like the hours that when we pray the liturgy, the hours. And the agreed upon wage was a denarius. A denarius was a, a Roman coin that was the uh, typical daily wage at the time. It was, in fact, what a Roman soldier was paid. So the parable of the workers in the vineyard teaches that the the promised kingdom is a gift. It's a gift of grace and not a wage. For salvation is not the fruit of a commercial contract, but consists in a communion of love. 
It's, it's a filial response on our part to the initiative of God who offers us his friendship. Um, in other words, it's a covenant. And as Scott Hahn would say, uh, you know, a contract is an exchange of goods and services. What's, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. But a covenant is a filial response. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a family bond and therefore an exchange of persons. I am yours and you are mine. And Jesus, therefore, he's clarifying that relationship that constitutes membership in the kingdom of heaven. Entrance into the kingdom is by God's grace. We don't become members of the church merely by faith or desire, but by baptism, through which, uh, you know, it's a channel of grace through which we become the adopted children of God. We become members of his family. And again, this, this parable isn't so much about rewards as it is about salvation. It's, it's a very strong teaching about grace, about God's condescension and his generosity. And no doubt, uh, you know, many people that you and I don't expect to see in heaven, you know, expect to see in the kingdom will in fact be there. You know, the criminal who repented as he was dying will be there, like St. Dismas, the good thief on the cross. And be right there alongside, you know, people who have believed and served God uh, for many, many years. Catholicism is often called the, the religion of the deathbed conversion. And we shouldn't begrudge those who turn to God in the last moments of life. Because for one thing, we know that God's justice will be served. Right? That the, the temporal punishment due for sins uh, will be endured in purgatory. But the broader message here is that in reality, no one deserves eternal life. No one deserves to go to heaven. We're all sinners, and it's always a gift of grace. It doesn't mean that good works aren't meritorious. On, on the contrary, you know, you look at the epistle we just read. But the point is that, that Christians who do good cannot boast of their rights before God. And we should all of us simply do whatever we can to cooperate with God's grace and correspond to his uh, call and thereby render ourselves less unworthy of his friendship. Now, in his parable, God is the owner of an estate, right? That's what the owner, the landowner represents God. And those who believe in him are the workers. And the parable speaks as a reassurance to new believers, uh, you know, to be reassured of his grace, and to those uh, who feel superior because of their heritage or position, or, or who feel superior because they've spent so much time with Christ. Uh, I, I know you've never been guilty of uh, feelings like that, but I have to admit that, uh, you know, as a, as a Catholic who prefers the extraordinary form of the Mass, it rankles sometimes uh, when I go to church these days, I go to church on Sunday, and there's nowhere to sit. Uh, and if I don't make a special effort to get my family to church on Sunday early, um, not only will we not, you know, we probably have to stand, but we may have to assist uh, at the Mass from outside in the courtyard, you know, sitting in a folding chair and kneeling on the ground and, and listening to, to Mass over the outdoor speakers. And it's just because so many new people are coming to the traditional Latin Mass now. <laughs> Some time ago, I was kind of grumbling about this, um, how crowded it was. And one of my kids said, Gee, Pop, isn't this exactly what you've been praying for, like, forever? Yeah, like maybe your whole life, kid? You know, your children will keep you honest, uh, even when they grow up. But th the point is, I shouldn't be resentful of those who have just recently discovered what I just discovered years ago regarding the traditional liturgy, that, that it's a pearl of great price. And the same goes for the faith in general. I was once a new convert myself. So rather than resenting God's gracious acceptance of others, I should instead focus on his gracious benefits to me and be thankful for what I have. 
And this is not unlike the, the situation that Jesus is addressing in this parable. You know, following the catechism of Catholic Church, which is following which is following St. Thomas Aquinas, who was following St. Augustine, uh, the Church teaches us that to look first to the literal meaning of Scripture, what the words actually mean. And so you have to understand, yes, this is a parable, it's not a uh, history. So what does that mean? It means it's a metaphorical story, but it still has a literal meaning. You have to determine um, what that meaning is by the particulars of the story. And think of the... In its original context, the words, so the last shall be first, were probably addressed in the first place to uh, the Jewish Christians. You know, the Jews should have been the very first to enter into God's kingdom because the promise of the kingdom was made precisely to the chosen people, to them. And they, the many, as he says, were all of them called. And then in the next place, in a wider sense, they're addressed to all men. And there's a double meaning. First, that many of us um, who, according to time, are the first to be called, will be the last to receive their reward, having, uh, having to suffer a long time in purgatory to, you know, in expiation for our laxity or, or, or lukewarmness, uh, lukewarmness on earth. So, you know, uh, you know, you go to Mass, you say your prayers, you go to confession. If you're just going through the motions, like St. Paul was talking about in the epistle, I'm going to spend a long time expiating for that, whereas perhaps those who are called later will, on account of their zeal, be received sooner into the kingdom. And secondly, many who on earth were esteemed by others to be of the lowest degree may receive the the greatest share of heavenly happiness. You know, uh, um, and and you know those those who through their popularity or power will will you know uh, actually enjoy the lowest degree of happiness. In the parable, the master of the house is God, and the marketplace is the world, and the vineyard is God's kingdom on earth, the church, and the laborers in the vineyard are the faithful, who are called by Christ to believe in the one true faith and to live in accordance with it. And and the work day represents our lifetime on earth, and the denarius that each was paid represents the eternal reward of the vision of God. It took me a long time to understand that people have their conversions at different times. You know, um, great saints, Francis of Assisi, Teresa of Avila, they were cradle Catholics. But when we read their story, we we see that they had their conversion later in life. um, In her, you know, after she had entered into religion for Teresa of Avila and as as a young man who had had been a soldier in the case of uh, Francis of Assisi. See, God calls Catholics to take seriously the work of his vineyard, but they respond at different times. Some in the early morning as little children, others uh, as boys and girls. Some he calls in the sixth hour, uh, right? Uh, Others he calls when they're full-grown men and women. And many he calls at the eleventh hour, uh, at the evening of life or old age or on their deathbed. You know, note that the the paying of wages takes takes place at the close of the day, right? At the end of our lives, when after death... Those whom God called late in life will receive an everlasting reward just as well as those called earlier, provided that they, like the laborers in the vineyard, obeyed God's voice when he did call them and worked with perseverance. That is, they lived their lives according to the faith, even unto the end of the day. Uh, Those called at the 11th hour represent sinners who, until they were called, lived without God 
and, and perhaps didn't have faith or practice good works. And the parable, therefore, teaches us that even the sinner will be saved if, at the end of his life, he opens his heart to God's grace and is converted. Salvation doesn't depend on when we're called, because that depends entirely on God. But it does depend on how we obey that call and whether or not we persevere to the end. Now, I have a a bunch of notes here, uh, and I'm not going to have time to get to it all. But I wanted to share just a couple of things. Uh, The last man in the parable receives as much as those who came first because God doesn't reward us according to the time of our labor, but according to the zeal, love, fidelity, and humility with which we have uh, cooperated with his grace. All men are called because our Lord Jesus Christ died for all. And as um, Paul says in 1 Timothy, he desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Thomas Aquinas tells us that God gives every man, without exception, every human being, the grace necessary for salvation. Now, the chosen ones are those who really attain to heaven. And the name chosen is given to them because God, in his eternal counsel, and and for knowing their correspondence with his grace, has chosen them for his kingdom out of the multitude of those whom he calls. Thus, uh, uh, all those who are, are, are among the chosen, uh, by corresponding with grace, making good use of their calling and the graces that God gives them, And the number of the chosen is, our Lord says, small in comparison with the multitude of those called, the many. Very many of those called are lost by their own fault. So this is a solemn and terrible truth that uh, St. Peter tells us about in his second epistle. Chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Wherefore, brethren, labor the more that by good works you may make sure your calling and election. Right. As a final thought, I I don't know about you, but I wish certainly to be among the chosen. Uh, But that's not possible if I'm lukewarm and slothful in the service of God. But, you know, if you're a cradle Catholic, you were called by God when you were a little child to work in his vineyard and serve him and labor for the salvation of your soul. So from this day forward, let's you and me both try to be more zealous in God's service. And remember not to murmur or be envious when God gives to someone else as much or more than he gives to us. Um, and if sometimes we are envious, you know, apply to ourselves the reproach that the master of the parable uttered against the laborers. Are, are you envious because God is good to your brother? God forbid. That's no nonsense. All right, we'll be back next week to do it all again. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being with us. Thank you especially for your prayers. And uh, if possible, I want to encourage you to visit bmpr.org. And if you have a little something that you can help us with during this penitential season, it's good for your soul. Uh, Okay, until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.